efficiency and quality are the main drivers really in all of healthcare, speed and quality and, uh, you know, speed of care and access and quality. So everything about digital and artificial intelligence, in my opinion, is right in the sweet spot of where it should be. You add to that a layer of decreasing pathologists in the U.S. And, you know, there's not a decreasing number of patients or samples or specimens. So there has to be a way to get that that work done for the benefit of the patient. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. So what needs to happen for there to be widespread adoption of digital pathology? Well, one way might be collaborations between some of the vendors and larger pathology groups. My guest today is Dr. Derek Welch, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Path Group. We're going to talk about his career so far and get his thoughts on the use of digital and computational pathology and artificial intelligence. And we'll talk about Path Group collaborating with ProSHA and how this benefits their patients. All right, here's Dr. Derek Welch. So the place I want to start with you is uh, kind of, I guess, before medical school, because I'm always curious to hear the story of like, how was someone inspired to become a doctor? So what was your inspiration to go to medical school? Yeah, sure. So when I started college as an undergrad, uh, the intent was not to prepare myself to go to medical school. Okay. I started actually as an engineering major that lasted a couple of weeks before I decided that was not for me. Um, And then just went through a process of trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do that I think a lot of young people do. Um, The university where I studied had a program that was somewhat unique in that for students who were academically inclined and had the right grades, you could get into a program where you could build your own major if it didn't exist in the roster of majors that were available. And so that program became very interesting to me. Um, I wanted to study a few different things and ended up getting into that program as a sophomore and built a curriculum around biology and philosophy, specifically medical ethics. And really, it was just interest that I had in those things. There was no plan at that point even to go to med school. Obviously, that kind of undergraduate curriculum, I needed some sort of secondary plan unless I wanted to teach or uh, whatnot. So as things evolved, studying medical ethics and biology, I became more interested in medicine and, and had a little voice in the back of my head as such. But quite frankly, I was scared of the commitment as a teenage, an early 20s young man, you know, what does it mean to go to med school and can I get in and right. through and all of those things. So ultimately, I decided to give it a shot. And um, obviously, it worked out. But that's a little bit of how things unfolded through that process. I came from a family that does not include physicians, but both of my parents were medical technologists. And here I end up in pathology. So okay. I had some exposure growing up. And my sister is a nurse. So I want to talk about the medical ethics part a little bit because because that's interesting. And, it, and I think that I wonder how much of a role that played in the eventual decision to become a doctor. And then is it do the, do the things that you kind of learned in medical ethics, does that still apply to what you're doing now? Yeah, great question. At the time, one of the reasons that I sort of pled my case for being part of this special undergraduate program was you know, there was no degree in medical ethics. That's really a graduate level 
subdiscipline in philosophy in most institutions that teach philosophy. But I wanted to study it as an undergrad. So I ended up enrolling in a lot of graduate level courses as an undergraduate. And part of the program was a thesis that I had to write that had to do with, you know, my perspective in different healthcare environments on ethical issues. And I put myself in those environments and, and observed and volunteered and interviewed people and built a casebook really around what I thought were pertinent issues of the time and what my opinions were. The, the notion was that I would then go through medical training all the way through residency of whatever at that time not knowing it would be pathology ultimately, and see if my temperament or thoughts on those ethical issues changed. So the idea was to try to understand, does medical training in the U.S. alter someone's approach and thoughts related to large medical ethical issues? So as I, as I went along through training, um, I would say that overall, not much changed in my opinions on some of those larger issues. So it wasn't quite a, a big boom result that, that would be more interesting. Um, but yes, I, the way that it influenced me to go to medical school was it exposed me to all sorts of different environments in medicine. It really, as a young person who had no exposure to hospital medicine and, and surgical specialties and psychiatric care and maternal fetal medicine. I mean, I got exposure to all that as an undergrad. So it very much gave me a good foundation of understanding about what I was getting into. So then going in, did you have like a, a specialty in mind? I mean, was it pathology because of the influence of your parents or were you interested <laughs> in other things? No, it's funny. I, um, because I spent so much time with people as an undergrad for that project, I specifically remember telling my family, I don't really know what I want to do, but I'm pretty sure it will not be radiology or pathology <laughs> because I saw those two disciplines as people behind you know, it, behind closed doors and, and behind the scenes and not patient patient facing. So, yeah. but ultimately, um, you know, my, my uh, desire to be involved in some of those more patient facing environments, specifically surgery and the clinic environments, I just didn't like those as much as I did the visual components of pathology. And, and so I ended up kind of doing a, a 180 on those thoughts, which is, as you know, so often the case for young people going through medical school, they have a preconceived notion of what they want to do. And, and then exposure changes that. And that's right. really what happened with me. Okay. I'm curious about the exposure to pathology. Then do you think in medical school, because you know, a lot of the people that I've talked with say, you know, you get a little bit of it in the first year or two, and then that's it. And I wonder, do you think there's enough exposure to pathology in med school? Yeah, you know, that's a very timely question. And, and here's what I mean by that. I'll, I'll tell you my experience first, then I'll get back to the timeliness of the question. So we had a very, very hearty, involved, high energy pathology course at Vanderbilt, where I went to medical school in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, and that course was high impact for me. A lot of charismatic sort of fixtures in the teaching world at the medical school. And so, yes, it was a very, um, involved and detailed and very well done course. And so I think that definitely had an impact on my decision. I enjoyed the course very much and the people from the pathology department, which is ultimately where I trained as a resident at Vanderbilt as well, were very influential as mentors to me. The question about um, exposure in general, you know, it's been many moons since I was in the training environment, but uh, as in my current role with, with uh, Path Group, I interview and manage lots of physicians. And so I'm seeing 
what's happening with, with American medical students. And my understanding is that a lot of the pathology knowledge and teaching has been folded into casework. So immersive group work on cases and patients, which I think is outstanding, but it's moved away from the traditional classroom teachings of a pathology course. And unless you do a rotation in pathology as an elective in most medical school curriculum, you're not really exposed to what pathologists do. Um, and so I think I think younger people aren't really seeing pathology as a career. And that's that's bearing out in the data. The latest data I've seen is about a thousand open positions for pathologists in the U.S. with only around 400 people coming out of training right. this, you know, uh, this summer in July. So uh, those are pretty daunting numbers. And I think it's probably just a function of exposure for the profession. Okay, that makes sense, and that kind of uh, goes along with what I've heard from a, a lot of other people. That and that, I think that's going to be a problem in probably the not too distant future. There, you know, we're we're already hearing about there not being enough pathologists, and it sounds like that's going to get worse. Oh, most certainly. I mean, it's it, it's already a problem for sure. Uh, there's more demand, more volume for uh, healthcare services work in the pathology and laboratory space than there are professionals to to do it. So. That calls for efficiency gains and and uh, technology adoption that can help and assist with that problem. That's that's the that's the view that I have and and those of others at, at Path Group as well. Okay, uh, that makes sense, and we're we're going to talk about that a little bit later. The, before that, though, I just one more thing about your uh, kind of pathology sort of path. I mean, you did a, a fellowship in GI pathology, uh, and so tell me about that. How did you get interested in in GI path? Yeah, sure. Um, so at Vanderbilt, I was um, I was priming myself to go into the private sector, and, and most pathologists that train that's where they land, right? In, in private practice settings, and yeah. um, the mantra at the time in pathology training was: you need to have general skills, but you need to be a subspecialist and have some sort of niche as well that you are an expert in. And and I enjoyed GI pathology. Uh, a fabulous GI pathologist at Vanderbilt. Kay Washington was there and had not had fellows. And I went to her to ask about places that I might want to train and who she knew across the country. And um, she divulged that she was thinking about starting a program. So I ended up being the inaugural GI fellow. I believe that program has continued on since. And that was great. It allowed me to stay put, which was nice as a young, young guy. Uh, and it also allowed me to sort of custom build the, the the nature of that fellowship program along with Dr. Washington. It was a great experience too. And so uh, I felt like I had the, the tools then to go into private practice and bring a subspecialty to bear for a group, but also be a generalist. So that was kind of the philosophy and approach at the time. And it worked out very well. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. And it seems like GI pathology in particular, this is one of the subspecialties that's really been growing, uh, certainly in the past few years, but I think it will continue to grow too. So that's a, that's a good one to be in. It sounds like. Yeah, it's been great. And I mean, there's, it's high volume pathology with, uh, lots more people showing up for screening colonoscopies, for example, and health awareness. And, yeah. um, and it's, it's just a high yield, uh, high biopsy rate. Uh, subspecialty in medicine, gastroenterology, a lot of tissue diagnostics and a lot of back and forth between pathology and and those clinicians who are doing those procedures. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned PATH Group already, where but right now you're the chief medical officer. And I wonder, can you tell me about PATH Group 
and then how you came to join there. Sure. Path Group uh, started as a conventional private practice here in Nashville, Tennessee, where there was a, a smaller cohort of pathologists servicing local hospitals as laboratory directors. It grew over time to a multi-regional practice. And, and today we have 213 pathologists and we're in multiple states in the Southeast. Um, so we've really grown over the years and by broadening our platform and adding uh, additional groups and additional testing platforms, including clinical lab reference work and molecular testing. Um, I first came to know the group by participating in a moonlighting opportunity as a resident started as a third year resident where I would handle gross tissue samples on the weekend to help push things through the technical lab for path group. So I got to know some of the technical uh, folks as well as some of the pathologists and uh, was very impressed by sort of the forward thinking nature of the group and, and where they were and what they did. I wanted to stay in the area. Um, and so made sure that I got to know folks and ended up applying to to path group when I was finishing up training and was offered a job. So it's a pretty simple, unexciting story. Really. I got to know folks locally and, and joined the group and, and made it clear pretty early on that I at least had some appetite to learn about doing things for the group and the company beyond just signing out cases. And that was, I'm very thankful for the opportunities I've been given here because that was embraced by the president and CEO at the time, Dr. Ben Davis, who is still the CEO of the company and has been a, a mentor of mine through the years and has definitely given me opportunities to flex into the position I'm in now as the chief medical officer, which is predominantly non-clinical duties. So not signing out cases. Um, and that just evolved over time, Dennis. I mean, I, you know, I had, there's a lot to learn in a, in a uh, practice as complex as ours has become mm -hmm. and I'm still learning. Uh, so, but that chief medical officer title was granted a few years ago, and and those duties include managing the professional services of the group and really assisting with uh, the business in general. Not so much the financial management, but the management of technology adoption and the things related to medicine, but that have business drivers associated with them. Like going back to again to the medical ethics part of from your undergrad. I mean, does that sort of tie in with that? Do you use those, I guess, skills or way of thinking? You know, I have to say not, not as much as you might think. I mean, there, it's a lot more tactical, uh, decisions around business case for things like new technologies and platform adoption. The one place where we do touch medical ethics has to do with research and, and, and data monetization and making sure that that's handled appropriately with regard to patient privacy and, uh, the rules that, that blanket all of medicine around HIPAA. Uh, so that's the one place that we, we sort of regularly touch on things related to medical ethics. I wouldn't say it's a main driver of my daily professional activities as chief medical officer. I've, I've really leaned more into what I would say are human resource type involvements and engagements with the other pathologists that are working for the group because my, one of my main duties is to manage that group of people. Okay, I see. And do you, you still get to do some clinical work though too, right? I do. Okay. Um, I try to, to make sure that, you know, I keep my skills up and, and do some level of work. And then, you know, as a person who has one foot in the executive team of the company and is also a practicing physician, you know, if there's a need, if there's an acute need or, or someone is 
is out. And we all know how that went down with the pandemic. Certainly, I hop in and help out and right. sign out cases. I still do general search path as well as GI. Uh, so, I, I, yes, I still do practice medicine in that regard. Okay. I see. All right. Now, you, so you mentioned that the technology aspect a, li- a little bit earlier, and I want to get into that because Path Group recently partnered with ProSha for digital pathology services. So tell me about this partnership, like, as, I guess, as much as you can, how did this come about? And then how is this going to help uh, your patients? Yeah, great question. There's a little bit of a story here. So let me see if I can kind of walk into this. Um, okay. The, the group here has been focused on the idea of digital pathology for a long time. That doesn't make us unique. The entire pathology profession has been talking about and thinking about digital pathology for years yeah. now. Um, what we did was we, we watchfully waited to see if there would be FDA approval for platforms and what kind of, you know, uh, credentialing or, or approval process there would be around the technology. But also we were waiting to see, you know, what is the return on investment here for this technology? What are the benefits both financially and for the patient? So those are questions that are pretty hard to answer. Um, I would say through 2018, uh, we certainly watched uh, as Phillips had garnered uh, FDA approval and we decided to go ahead and move into the space. And as we learned more about the Phillips technology, which was our chosen platform at the time, you know, we wanted to make sure that it would create efficiencies uh, for pathologists. We thought that was our thesis was that the return on investment had to do with efficiency in pathologist time and throughput. Uh, indeed, that's proven true. So that thesis worked. And, and that's that's not a thesis we came up with. That's what the digital pathology community and, and vendors of the technology would tell you is the thesis. So uh, so we came to believe that as we integrated things. Um, and we also developed, um, you know, some of our own workflow around pathology. And we use a proprietary LIS. Our laboratory information system is our own. So that's given us some freedom to do some creative things with digital workflow. And we just moved at scale, oddly enough. We went live in March of 2020, right as the pandemic was really, really unwinding and unfolding here in the U.S. Um, that's exactly when we went live. And uh, we moved at scale through the process with Philips. And that's been a very nice partnership. We've helped Philips learn some things about uh, scalable digital pathology, and, and they've certainly helped us learn about digital pathology utility. Well, what, we, what we've learned now over the last three years also is that there's a need to be primed and ready to intercept artificial intelligence uh, capabilities in a way that's quick and nimble and potentially expand into further scanner uh, vending platforms beyond just Phillips. So we asked ourselves, well, how do we do that? How, how, do, you, how do you get there? And we came to know ProSha. David West, who's the CEO at, at ProSha, um, actually met with us several years ago when he was first starting ProSha. So we knew of David and ProSha, and we reconnected. And really, they're, they're software products. They describe themselves as a software company. Their software products allow you to be agnostic to AI vendor and have a way to utilize best-in-class algorithms quickly and easily. And also allow you to utilize a fleet of scanners that might be a patchwork of different vendors. You might have Philips, you might have Leica, you might have some other scanners. And, and some of those scanners have 
differentiating features and capabilities that are attractive to us. Certainly, we'll still remain uh, and use the Phillips scanners that we have. So the driver for ProSha was who can help us quickly get to a point where we can use different scanners and use artificial intelligence. That's the main driver. And, and I have to say and compliment that David West has built an absolutely fabulous team. I mean, the, the group of people, they did a proof of concept with us on integration and using their tools went very, very well. And they've, they've proven to be wonderful partners so far. We're planning to go live with their concentric DX product here just within the next few weeks. Yeah, I had, had David West on the podcast. It was last year sometime. And, oh, it, and yeah. yeah, and he was telling me about the concentric platform. And it sounds, yeah, super interesting and very, um, I guess, versatile is, is a good word for it. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, with what we've seen and, and tested out in that proof of concept. And it's um, they, they've really been thoughtful about the functionality that they've put into that and, and clearly had very good input from uh, the pathology community and other business leaders on what those needs are because they've they've really kind of hit the nail on the head, in my opinion. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Derek Welch. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhuroff, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology Podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Derek Welch on the People of Pathology podcast. So do you think, because Path Group is is pretty big, and, and having ProSha you know, in your group, I, I was thinking, I was thinking about this, like, how does that, is that sort of like a proof of concept for kind of the wider pa- pathology or medical community? Like, you know, this system is being used in this large group. So, you, you know, like, would this help digital pathology catch on more because of the, the, the size of this collaboration? Does that make yeah. any sense? Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think that would be the hope of Prosha for sure. Um, and, uh, and we, we, we are told pretty frequently that, that we're a, one of the larger digital in, uh, institutions in the U.S., private digital companies. And, and yes, I think people do look to, you know, what are the thorns and burrs that come along with instituting digital from groups that have done it, especially larger groups. And what are the efficiencies and gains and wins that come along with that? And, you know, it's it's new territory still. Uh, there is certainly is not just one way to do this. It all depends on the size of your group, the geographic footprint of your group, the revenue opportunities with your group and what kind of cash on hand you have and capital for this kind of endeavor and how you make use of it in a consequent way that really makes it work so that you're set up to uh, be efficient so that you're set up to eliminate cost, for example, 
even though you've added costs and an extra step to the lab, uh, you, you really need to be displacing something somewhere along the way. And then, you know, you've got, uh, you've got the whole concept of the quality that comes with those artificial intelligence uh, tools and, and utility downstream, which I think we all know that if built the right way and proven to work, computers can do things more reliably than a human can, and they never get tired. <laughs> so, and they don't make mistakes if the if the algorithm is set up correctly. And so that's really yeah. what we're what we're driving towards. But but yes, I think there is going to be a lot of watchful eyes on maybe what we're doing, but also other groups as they flex into this and the digital community at large that's creating the technology, I think understands that and are looking for creative wins in the market to show that this works at scale. That's what everybody's kind of been watching for. I would add personally that um, it really needs to be shown to work at small scale as well so that the four or five 10 person pathology group, 10 pathologists have drivers for adopting digital as well. Oh, yeah. um, if, you know, if you have a group of five pathologists who are all sitting in offices directly adjacent to their solitary technical lab, it's a little bit of a tough story still to sell the concept of digital to them unless they just want to move and work remotely. Right. Otherwise, there's not much gain unless you start folding in artificial intelligence, because as we all know, it's prerequisite to be digital before you can apply any kind of artificial intelligence to an image. So I think artificial intelligence might really end up being something that tips the scales where people feel a need to move into the digital space more than they do today. I mean, I, I know Approach's system uh, kind of allows for artificial intelligence to be used, different modules and kind of add-ons, sort of things like that. And you mentioned earlier, um, we talked about kind of the shortage of pathologists, and I feel like using artificial intelligence would increase efficiency, which would allow make up for a little bit that shortage by allowing the pathologists that are uh, around to be more efficient and faster. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that completely. And some of the data that I've seen from some of the leading artificial intelligence companies that are building algorithms, you know, not only is it very, very appealing data related to quality enhancements and closing the gap between ground truth and human error, but they're lightning fast, easy to use. I mean, they're really, really phenomenal tools. And and there's been a fear, I think, amongst pathologists of being displaced by uh, artificial intelligence. And I, I right. you know, I made a little bit of a cheesy um, <laughs> comparison before with people. You know, it's kind of like a soldier in a, in a military unit. Soldiers for a long time carried swords and were, were less effective. You give a soldier a modern day weapon, you haven't displaced the soldier. You've just given him a better tool they can use to be more efficient and effective. And you know, that you could say the same for athletics or so oh, you come up with all kinds of comparisons, but these are, these are tools that make the end result for patients better and faster and are utilized by pathologists and pathology groups at a time when efficiency and quality are the main drivers really in all of healthcare, speed and quality and, uh, you know, speed of care and access and quality. So, Everything about digital and artificial intelligence, in my opinion, is right in the sweet spot of where it should be 
You add to that a layer of decreasing pathologists in the U.S. And, you know, there's not a decreasing number of patients or samples or specimens. So there has to be a way to get that that work done for the benefit of the patient. Right. I mean, if anything, there's an increased number of specimens and patients. I mean, we've seen data. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, coming out of the pandemic, there's going to be, you know, an increase in or a predicted increase, a large increase in the number of cancer diagnoses in the next couple of decades. That's right. right. And people are living longer. Yep. Even after receiving those diagnoses with, you know, greater access to follow up care and additional samples and additional uh, laboratory needs. So everything's kind of expanding, whereas the number of, of practicing pathologists in the U.S. is going the opposite direction. So it's a challenge. Yeah, for sure. So it sounds like uh, from what your experience and I guess your, your opinion, maybe like the role of AI in pathology is going to continue to grow and be pretty much necessary. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've th- this is a this is my prediction. So it's one person's view, but okay. I can see that there's a time where um, some of these artificial intelligence tools will be considered standard of care. In other words, there might be urologists or breast surgeons or dermatologists who say, you know, unless you are applying the blank, fill in the blank, algorithm to my cases, you know, I'm going to find a pathology provider that does, that has that capability, because I know that you're going to get, it might be a a very small margin, a a 0.5% enhancement in getting things right, but that 0.5% is critically important to the people that fall in that layer. And so if I've got an option on the market for a provider that can close that gap, you know, that's who I'm going to use. I don't know that it will get to that, but history tells us that capabilities for things like ERPR HER2 testing in breast immunohistochemistry. I mean, you're not in the game if you're trying to provide breast services to someone and you don't have the capability of getting those tests done, whether you're doing them yourself or sending them out. You have right. to do them. Right. And, and I just can't help but think that some of these algorithms with what I've seen and how impressive they are, those will become the same kind of, they'll be the same healthcare parentheses market, you know, demand for these tools that has, that, that we've seen with other testing modalities. I think that's where it's going. Okay. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it, it does make sense. And, and like you said, it's, there's kind of a historical uh, aspect to that. It, it Like it's happened before. Interesting. Okay. And you know, for you personally, like how did you get interested in the digital computational pathology? I mean, was it coming into path group where they, was there already kind of, were they starting to use that or did you get involved with that later? No, uh, when I first came in, so I've been with path group now for 17 years. So it, mm-hmm. the, the conversation around digital, it certainly existed that long ago, but, but not in any anywhere near the, the sort of earnest manner that it exists now that it's here. Um, I can't really take any credit for for pushing Path Group into digital. Ben Davis, uh, Dr. Ben Davis, our uh, CEO, is the one who really has always been kind of the the forward thinking um, engine at Path Group. And his, you know, he was he was talking about you know, the fact that this is where pathology was going to go many years ago. And I think it's his leadership of, of, of pushing the group towards being an early adopter uh, that, that really has gotten us where we are. Now, I became someone who got interested in that and helped to execute on that over the last few years uh, and have definitely come to believe in it and have really enjoyed it. I would say that 
moving into digital pathology has been probably the most professionally satisfying component of what I've done in private practice. Um, it's been great and a lot of fun. People have embraced it. But it's it's really the forward thinking senior leadership that, that pushed us in that direction. Um, a cohort of us kept our eyes on what was evolving at the visions conferences and in the literature and uh, and really just made a decision to jump when we did. And it's just it's still kind of a happy accident that we were fully primed and ready to go live right as the pandemic started, because that helped us out a bit as well. We do have pathologists that are able to access cases at home and, and work from home when they're sick, but not sick enough to do work, you know, and, and, and prevent exposure, which became a sort of a household approach to things through the pandemic, of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about then, you know, we've heard a lot about the potential for pathology data to be used in, in things like drug development, companion diagnostics, and, and those sort of things in the you know future or maybe not too distant future. I feel like it is important that a pathologist is kind of the driver of that technology. Does that make sense? Like how, how important do you think it is that, that, uh, that pathologists are involved in this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's critically important and, mm-hmm. and here's how I would qualify that. You know, the, the material, the solid tumor DNA, the data that comes through pathology laboratories, given the advancement of technologies to query that call it, you know, ask questions of that tissue to personify it. Um, about genetic defects that are both diagnostic and prognostic and now theranostic, meaning if I find a defect, there's a, there's some, a bullet I can fire chemotherapeutically at a cancer patient. Uh-huh. You know, this is all personalized medicine, right? That we're talking about. That's, that's what this is. Right. A lot of the answers that to the questions that need to be asked to provide that care to the patient lie in those samples. So pathology is sitting at a very interesting sort of in my opinion, sort of central crossroad of between between the patient and the surgeon and the surgical oncologist and the medical oncologist and the internist and the pediatrician. And we're, we're sitting sort of right at the center where all of these fluids, blood, urine, CSF, um, and solid tissues and cytologic samples are coming to us. And the technologies continue to advance on what kinds of questions we can answer from that material that's sent to us, including I've seen sort of sneak peeks at some, some algorithms that will uh, read H and E stain slides and can actually pick up on nuclear details that tell you about certain genetic defects that, that are likely to be present. You know, that that's just astonishing, right? So yeah. algorithms wow. that can actually see beyond what a, what a human eye can see in the morphology because of the computational pathology and machine learning and uh-huh. training these across large cohorts of different tumor types. So when you think about pharma and research and and how much money is put into uh, cancer treatment specifically, there's a lot of interest in the data that is held by pathology groups. Pathology groups don't hold the outcomes data, and that's a critical piece as well. Typically, we don't have the information re- that, that um, shows how patients do on certain treatments and how they respond, that's certainly available. But we have that information on um, what kinds of different tumor morphologies and, and tumor stages have different uh, defects. And that tells you something about the biology and expected behavior. 
So I expect the companion diagnostics and quantitative IEC market to really explode. We, we've seen what's happened with PDL1 already. Um, HER2 is now expanding rapidly out across all solid tumors, not just, not just breast. And so these things are becoming more and more uh, applicable to a more broad-based patient population. And the research and pharma industry is very interested in that. Yeah, I like it. And this is, all these things are, you know, being in pathology, it's an exciting time to be in this field, to watch these advancements come and and how important they're going to be in uh, treating patients. So I, I love talking about this stuff, this kind of stuff. It's very exciting. Yeah, indeed. We have, we have a lot of enthusiasm amongst our scientists and molecular pathologists and anatomic pathologists about all of these things. You've got all these technologies that are colliding in a very exciting way. So yes, I feel very fortunate to be on board with a forward-thinking company that's an early adopter. It's it's absolutely terrific to see where this is going. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Dr. Derek Welch, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. Enjoyed it. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a preview of my interview with David West, the CEO of Prosha, as we talk about how pathology data has a critical role in precision medicine. The value of going digital is not just about moving from microscope to monitor. It's what you can do with this data. And the promise of precision medicine lies in that, in how computers and people and this data can come together. And the reality is, there have been really exciting developments in the pathology AI space, and yet we are very early in that trend. We expect to see decade to, a decade to decades of innovation in applications enabled by deep learning being applied to this new kind of data medium. And we expect those applications to be simple at first, uh, but over time, to perhaps be multimodal in nature, combining molecular information with image information, maybe with radiology, etc. You can hear more from David West in episode 130. All right, great big thanks to Dr. Derek Welch. You know, I find these new technologies coming in pathology really fascinating. So it's always interesting for me to have someone on the podcast to be able to talk about these things. And like we said during the interview, hopefully having a large group like Path Group adopt these technologies will help speed up more widespread use of digital pathology. It will also be interesting to see what's coming in the use of AI in pathology, which of course will make things more efficient and more precise. But also, like Dr. Welch mentioned, this could unlock some things in the pathology images that the human eye can't see. And all of these things together, of course, will result in better care for our patients. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Hey, don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You could find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.